Back in March of 2008, there was a mayor of a city in the southwest of France who had a problem. His village was running out of space. Not in housing or in a retail district or even city hall or anything like that. No, they were running out of space in the cemetery. And there was no room for any more graves. And apparently, this is the worst joke I'll ever tell from the pulpit, people were just dying to get in. <laughs> we should push it up. At least somebody did. <laughs> so the mayor tried to purchase land and uh, all sorts of things, but he couldn't make anything work. And France has very strict laws about what kind of land can be used for these purposes. And they weren't able to get anything, and so he did what any politician would do. He passed a law. This law was posted in the city building, informing the 206 residents of this town that dying was no longer permitted in this town. And that law still exists there today, by the way. You can look it up. They, if, you, if, you, if you're going to die, you have to go somewhere else, apparently. The, the ordinance actually reads, All persons not having a plot in the seminary and wishing to be buried in, and I'm not going to try and pronounce this city name, this town name, because I just, I'll butcher it, but... Anyone wishing to be buried in this town are forbidden from dying in the parish. Offenders will be severely punished. <laughs> it's that last part that really gets me. Pastor's wives have a tough. I always ask my wife's permission before I tell a story about her. My kids, too, they don't quite understand it. In fact, my kids are thrilled when I say, hey, can I tell a story about you in, in my sermon? One day they'll be saying no, but for now they're happy. My wife, on the other hand, always just gives me a, a knowing nod because she knows that there's some kind of story at her expense coming. This is one of those mornings. She did give me permission to tell this story, though. Kate is what I would call an extreme empathizer. She doesn't so much um, acknowledge people's pain as much as actually feels it. Shortly after we were first married, she came home from work just in tears. I was trying to get to the husband. I said, honey, what's wrong? She proceeded to go on about this story of two of her co-workers who got in a, in a spat and a feud. She was going on and on. She said, so-and-so said this, and then what's-her-name said that, and then Joe Blow got involved and called him something not very nice. I was listening very patiently. I was waiting for the part where Kate got involved, and finally I couldn't take it. I said, Kate, where do you enter this story? How did it affect you? It wasn't. They were just so mean to each other. Kate can't handle it when people are mean. Kate feels people's pain. And our daughter has inherited this. Abby woke up with the worst nightmare we've ever experienced a couple of months ago. And when running into her room, she woke up just sobbing. And when she finally got control of herself, I said, Honey, what, tell me about the nightmare. Were they monsters? No. What, what was it? Oh, there were kids in the playground. They weren't being nice. My daughter, my wife, can't handle it when people don't like each other. When people are mean to each other, they feel both sides of it. My wife and my daughter are extreme examples of empathy. And unlike sympathy, which is actually just feeling sorry for someone, empathy is about sharing pain. So entering into someone else's pain and experiencing it with them. We're going to discuss that a little bit this morning, but let me start by saying this. In the North American context, in 21st century Canada, we are obsessed with cures. We are obsessed with a, a solution to a problem. Advil cures a headache. 
different medicines cure different things. A 10-step process cures your church. We're all about cures. And I just want to start by saying, if you can find anywhere in the Bible that, called, that we are called as Christians, that tells us that we are called to cure anything, please come and see me, because I have yet to find it. We are called over and over again to healing. And healing is very different than curing. Healing involves entering intentionally into pain for the betterment of everyone. Acknowledging pain, experiencing pain in an effort to improve. Our scripture this morning is going to come out of the Gospel of John, specifically chapter 11. I'm in the Tuesday morning Bible study with many of the men. When we get up far too early in the morning and come and discuss a book of the Bible at a time, a chapter or two at a time. And we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we went through chapter 11 a few weeks ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. And in my experience as a pastor, whenever that happens, it means that God is trying to tell me something, and it's probably time for me to acknowledge it. So that's where we are this morning. If you're familiar with the story of Lazarus in John 11, we're not going to read the whole thing, because it's actually quite a long story. If you're familiar with the story, we all summed up this way. Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. There, I just did it in the equivalent of one verse. But the actual story takes place in some 40-odd verses. And it's quite lengthy, so we're going to bounce around. But if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 11, and you can follow along with me as we jump around. But despite the overall length of the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, I want to focus on two very small parts of it. In fact, the first thing we're going to focus on is the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Two words that have immense significance. I often lament the fact that we have chapters and verses in our Bibles, because I think more often than not, they actually get in the way. But there's something, something beautiful about the fact that this was chosen to only, this verse was chosen to only be two words. Now let's be clear, the writer of John did not put that in there. That was decided much later. But the folks who did make that decision were trying to tell us something intentional. Jesus wept, and that is a complete thought, according to them. Why would they put so much emphasis on this one thing? Why would the writer of John even include it in the first place? Why put so much emphasis on the fact that Jesus cried, particularly in the midst of perhaps Jesus' most supernatural miracle outside of his own resurrection? Why focus on the emotional state of Jesus? So before we can begin to explore that, we have to explore a passage leading up to it, though. Let's take a moment and understand the context and the culture around this. So let's delve into a little bit of background. In ancient Israel, the bodies of the dead were washed and wrapped in, in cloth. And Jewish historians tell us that the corpses were usually perfumed with various spices to hide the smell. It was partly to honor the dead, but mostly it was to cover up the rot. They had none of the embalming techniques we have today. So bodies were always buried within a day or so. In fact, this is actually something that carries on in many places in the world. Where I grew up in South America, it is law that bodies must be buried and funerals take place within 24 hours. For this exact reason. So poor families, they would take the deceased out to a field and dig a hole and drop it in. For richer families, they could afford to use tombs. And so we know something about Lazarus' family and his, 
his family's economic status by the fact that we're told in John 11 he was buried in a tomb. It's a cave with a rock rolled in front of it. John 11.38 basically informs us that Lazarus and his family were quite wealthy. It says, Jesus came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And then, of course, we know the rest of the story. Jesus dies, or sorry, Lazarus dies. He's buried, and four days later, Jesus raised him from the dead. But there's a few odd things in here. And the first odd thing is this. Jesus could have been there before Lazarus dies. From the way the story plays out, there's no mistaking the fact that Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. Even before he got sick, Jesus knew. But then even after. Notice before the disciples knew that Lazarus had died, Jesus says to them in verses 11 and 13, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant a natural state. Jesus knew all of this was going to happen already. But still, he stays far away from where Lazarus is. He doesn't immediately go there. He waits two more days after he finds out Lazarus is even dead. He'd already known that Lazarus has passed away. But he waits two more days before returning to Jerusalem. Verse 6 says, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there for two more days. So Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying, and then he could have shown up a few days earlier, but he doesn't do either of those things. And Mary and Martha say exactly that to Jesus when he arrives. They both tell him the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And they were right. They knew that Jesus had already healed dozens, perhaps hundreds of people at this point in his ministry. They also knew that Jesus had, at this point, raised at least two others from the dead. And so, the moment that they realized Lazarus was deathly sick, they immediately sent for Jesus, and then Jesus seemingly ignores them. He didn't come. He didn't show up. And Lazarus dies. But there's another oddity in this story, and that's at the funeral for Lazarus. They're throwing a, a Jewish funeral and Jesus weeps. It's that short verse again. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, the Jews who had come, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. And so this is strange, because if Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick, and then he knew that he was going to die, and then he seemingly allows him to die, why weep? If he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, which he clearly did based on the verses before this, why shed tears? He wept because he saw Mary and the others weeping. And their grief tore at his heart, and he shed tears for their sorrow. So what does all this teach us? First, it teaches us that there will be times when Jesus doesn't show up when we want him to. Or at least it seems that way. This is carrying on from my sermon about two weeks ago where we were talking about lament and waiting patiently on the Lord. There will be times when we pray and we pray and we feel like Jesus just isn't there. He just doesn't show up. Kind of like when he didn't show up 
that that was Spencer. And I have to be honest with you, I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. It doesn't sit right with me. In fact, as I was writing this sermon, that's exactly what I, I got to this point in my, in my writing, and this is exactly what I said out loud in my office to myself. I said, you know, I really don't like that. To, 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 to beg and plead with God and know throughout all of Scripture, we're assured over and over again that when we pray, He will hear us, and then sometimes He just doesn't show up, or so it seems. I want God to do what I want done, when I want it done, and how I think it should be done. But God doesn't do it that way. Often we're hurting, we're suffering, we're losing, and when that happens, there's a part of us that wants to say, Jesus, if you'd only been there, this wouldn't have happened. It's kind of like having a fever. If you've ever had a bad fever, you remember that it's not pleasant. Children go through this all the time. Your muscles ache, your head aches, you shiver, you sweat, you feel weak. All you want to do is lay around the house and do nothing. And if you're anything like me, you're very cranky. I'm, I'm often surprised that when I get sick like this, my wife doesn't just quarantine me in the bedroom and feed me through a hole or something. I get miserable. I just want to be left alone. And it used to be that we fought hard, doctors and, and, and uh, pharmacists fought hard to bring down fevers. In fact, you can still find many medicines that are designed to do exactly that. Fever, looser, those kind of things. But something changed about 35 years ago. Researchers began to discover that moderate fevers are actually a necessary part of the body's immune system for fighting infections. And most of us know this now, it's, it's mostly common knowledge. We're not talking about dangerously high fevers, but moderate fevers mean your body is doing what it's supposed to to fight something off. So you go through something unpleasant for the betterment of your, of your body. So fevers, which we do not like, which hurt us, which make us uncomfortable, are actually designed by God to help us. They were designed to fix something wrong. And it's a strange thought to think that God created fevers on purpose. And of course, this applies to our spiritual life. There are times when he allows our spiritual fevers to run their course there are times he allows us to be uncomfortable, sometimes extremely uncomfortable. He does that because he has something he wants to change in our life. He wants to fix something. He wants to heal something. And sometimes there are even times when he allows us to suffer to bring about a greater purpose. Now, let's not get things conflated. I am not saying that God intentionally brings about bad things in our life to test our faith. There is no scriptural evidence for that, but God will use less than ideal circumstances for his glory. That's exactly what, Je what Jesus does for Lazarus. He brought suffering into Lazarus's life to bring about a greater purpose. Up until that point in his life, Lazarus had actually been one of Jesus' closest friends. Again, this is one of those things that often gets overlooked in this story. Lazarus isn't just some person who is loosely associated with Mary and Martha. Lazarus and Jesus are quite close. Everybody knew that he was one of his closest friends. When, they, when the sisters sent their message to Jesus, they said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And it's when Jesus came to Lazarus' grave 
that he gives his most powerful statement of his ministry. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Again, that's a famous passage of scripture. Many people are often surprised to find that it comes right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. We so often hear that verse alone that we take it out of the larger context of the story. Christ is standing before the tomb of someone who is dead saying, I am the resurrection and the life. In about, it's only about a week later that Jesus is going to prove he's the resurrection and the life. He's crucified only eight or nine days later. He's going to be arrested and tried and beaten within a couple of days. But before that happens, Jesus seems to use Lazarus as something of a test run. Before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, again, he's already resurrected two other people, the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow Nain. But they'd only been dead, each of them, for a couple of hours. And there's something significant about the four days that Lazarus is dead. According to Jewish theology, a person wasn't really dead until they'd been in the grave for three days. Now, I grant you this is a bizarre theology that Jews no longer hold to, and it was based on a very creative rendering of one verse in Job, but it was the thinking of the day. People weren't really dead until they'd been in the grave long enough for their body to start to decay. And so Jesus was using Lazarus' death as a proving ground. A proving ground that declared that Jesus really was the resurrection and the life. If you've ever seen one of my all-time favorite movies, The Princess Bride, you know what we're talking about here. Just seen in that movie where they bring Wesley to a miracle worker, and people who've seen it are already nodding their heads on exactly where I'm going with this. They bring him to Miracle Max. Max proceeds to inform Wesley that it's, a, that it's good news because Wesley is only mostly dead. And he can work with mostly dead. He says, when it's all dead, there's only one thing left to do. Go through the pockets and look for loose change. But mostly dead, you can work with. And the point is, at this point, Lazarus is not mostly dead. According to Jewish tradition, he was completely dead. It's time to start going through the pockets. It wasn't one day or two days in the grave. It was one day after he was deceased and a minimum of three days since he'd been in the, grave, in the tomb. So there was no theology, twisted or otherwise, that said Lazarus could still somehow be alive. His body had been there long enough to have started to decay. In fact, that's exactly what Martha protests when Jesus orders them to open the tomb. She says in verse 39, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor no one had ever been raised from the dead after four days. No one in the Old Testament and no one in the New Testament. No one had ever come back from that, from, or seemingly come back from the dead after that amount of time. Lazarus is the first and the only. And we're told that because Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, in verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did was so powerful that, quote, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Imagine being Lazarus in that situation. 
you were dead, now you're alive, and now someone's trying to kill you again. So when Jesus doesn't show up at Lazarus' sick bed, there's a reason. The reason was to bring about the faith of those he was going to die for. He's about to go and die. He knows this, and he's trying to show his glory. So Jesus had a plan all along, one that included him raising his friend from the dead. We can all see that now, so it only makes it stranger then why he wept. If all of this was for Jesus' glory, then why weep? This should be a moment of celebration. And it's simply, there's, there's, that I can find no other evidence other than Jesus had deep compassion. Jesus felt for those around him who were suffering. It is true that he let Lazarus die. He delayed in coming and he did not speak healing from a distance like he did for the centurion's son. We, son, excuse me, we certainly know that Jesus was capable of, of that from afar. He doesn't have to be there. But he delays and he still goes. He intentionally goes to where people are grieving and enters into their grief with them in order to promote healing. That doesn't mean he took causing the suffering lightly. Even though Jesus always chooses what will ultimately bring his Father glory, sometimes in Lazarus' case it can cause affliction and grief. He doesn't take delight in causing that. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is empathetic. And we see at the tomb of Lazarus just a glimpse of how the Father feels over the affliction and grief that we, his children, experience. Because God takes no pleasure in our suffering. These days, I think this is an incredibly important message to be preaching. In light of what's happening in the world, in light of COVID, we're hearing a lot of, of pastors and theologians somehow trying to say that God is, is taking delight in punishing, or that God is taking delight in this plan. I don't know God's cosmic reasons. I'm not going to pretend to understand what, what this year and everything that's happened this year, how it all falls into God's plan for us. But I promise you this, God does not delight in it. It is important that we understand that something can be part of a larger picture and God still grieves it. God knows our pain and our sorrows. And even when he allows us to suffer for our own good, he knows that it hurts us, and he's saddened because of it. And that's why Jesus weeps. That's part of the reason that Romans 8 assures us that when we pray, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groans and words that we cannot express. Because sometimes our sorrow is too deep to be able to fully explain and yet, somehow, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and translates the very groans of our soul. There are times in our life when we can't express things properly. We don't have to. We don't need to put words to our sorrow or to our grief or what we're going through. That is exactly how you and I feel every moment of our life. He grieves with us. He cares for us. He understands us. This is one that I used to, to, to hit on a lot when I was a youth pastor. Because nobody feels like they're misunderstood more than teenagers, and they're probably right. 
It's never been harder to be a teenager than it is today. And that is true every single day because it gets harder every day. Teenagers need someone to understand them. And it's hopefully a comforting feeling for some of them when they learn that God understands them better than they do. That all of the things they're going through, God is well aware of and grieving with them. Empathy, not sympathy. Not feeling sorry for someone, but entering into pain. Sympathy, in its own way, I don't want to say it's not all, it's, that it's always bad, but in a, in a way it's condescending. We're feeling sorry for someone, but when we empathize, we share in pain as well as joy. I tell a lot of stories about growing up overseas, and again, I'm not going to stop, because growing up in other places is great sermon fodder. When it makes up a majority of a person's formative years, I hope you understand the predilection that I have to go there, but we're very blessed in Canada. Most of us acknowledge that fact pretty readily. It's almost impossible not to feel sorry for the plight of impoverished and disenfranchised people all over the world. When I lived overseas, part of what I experienced was just a part of my upbringing, was seeing poverty and how it changes people, seeing this disenfranchisement. It was always amazing to me. My father used to uh, host short-term missions teams from Canada, and he would host about 30 or 40 of them a year. And it was always amazing to me, without fail, it didn't matter what they were doing. These people from Canada would come down for 10 days or two weeks or what have you. And the first day they'd get there, the energy is super high and they are going to change Bolivia forever. They are here and they are coming to save us. Even if they don't put it in those words, that's what they, you know, they're proud to be there. And by about day three or four, all of a sudden you see all of them just broke. All of a sudden you see them going, this, this school room that I'm building, or this church roof that I'm building, it's not a bad thing, but it's not going to make any difference in the grand scheme of things. And by about day five or six, that's when the questions would start coming. Well, why host these teams if we're not actually going to be changing anything? Why is it important for us to come down? And that's when my father and the rest of us would be able to say, it's not for them, it's for you. Because what the eye has not seen, the heart cannot breathe. It's one thing to watch compassion or, or world vision commercials on TV. It's another to go overseas and see it firsthand and understand and empathize with people. Not feel sorry for them, but to actually enter into their situation, enter into their pain, and say, you know what? I'm just going to be here with you. The great Oscar Romero, the, the uh, bishop from Central America who was martyred many years ago, had a great line. He said, if you're here to help me, I have no interest. But if you're here because your salvation and, the, and justice of your world is dependent on the salvation and justice of mine, let's talk. Empathy, not sympathy. It's one thing to see a, a starving child in Africa and be moved to sponsor a child. And I'm not taking away from how wonderful that can be. Please hear me clearly on that. But it is far more helpful to empathize with them and understand the entirety of their plight. There is too much to fit on the back of a postcard that we stick on our fridge. No person is that simple. And so in this regard, I think my wife is far more like 
the Lord than I am. She feels people's pain more than anyone I know, except for one. And he doesn't just feel that doesn't just understand our pain and sorrow, he feels it fully. So what, what does all this mean for us? What do we take away? It really boils down to two things. First, when we go through times that are tough, we have to remember that it might be a spiritual fever. That God might be using something terrible, something with terrible symptoms for His glory. Maybe some of us are experiencing that right now. Maybe some of you feel that God just isn't showing up. It would be easy, it would be so easy, for the one who raised the dead to take away your sorrow right now. But keep your eye to heaven. Because maybe, just maybe, God has plans bigger than our brains are capable of fathoming. But it also means that we have to be cognizant of those around us and in our midst. We must constantly look for ways to identify with and come alongside those who are hurting. We have to remember that the person in the pew next to you, the same one who looks like they may have a fear, they may have far more, their life, excuse me, they may have far their life far more put together than you do. That person may well be on the brink of a breakdown. Sometimes they just need a reassuring word or a hug. By all means, do the hug, just maybe not here in the church building. Soon. I want to finish with a cute story about two little girls. Maggie and Sally. Maggie had a favorite doll that she lost on the way to Sally's house one day. And Sally's mom went looking for them, and found them both crying together on the front step. She asked her daughter what she was doing, and she replied, I'm helping Maggie cry. And I love that sentiment. To sit and help someone cry. Let's remember to walk alongside those who are weeping and weep with them. As we grow in faith and understanding of what is His, and as we are conformed to His image and likeness, God's purposes become our purposes as well. And we more clearly comprehend that His works are perfect in an imperfect world. So let's strive to be like Jesus and weep with Him for those who suffer, regardless of what the reason for that suffering is. Let's pray together. With the groans and the silence, with all of the things we cannot express, Father, we come to you and we trust that you understand and that you feel it with us and we are so grateful that you sent your Son who knows us deeply and who came to save us despite us not being worthy of anything. So when it feels like you and he are not showing up, remind us of your great plan. Remind us to keep an eye to heaven. And if it be your will, show us as much of your plan as you are able, that we may understand our small part in it, we pray. Amen. May the same Father who created you in his image to feel pain and hurt and sorrow and empathy give you the same divine understanding and compassion as you go into a world and seek to bring his kingdom here on earth. Go in peace.